Commitments come with a cost. Have you discovered that fact of life? I'll tell you about one family that has discovered this. So Dwight and, uh, Dwight and Judy, uh, Judy Davis, Dwight and Judy Davis, they have a teenage son who likes to play golf. And they've made a commitment to do everything they possibly can to help their son earn a scholarship to play golf in college. Now to keep this commitment, Dwight and Judy have enrolled their son in this golf academy that costs $60,000 a year. And in addition to that, Dwight and Judy also spend thousands of dollars every year on their son's equipment and tournament fees. Now, Dwight and Judy, they, they admit that the cost of keeping this commitment has put a, a big strain on their budget. Okay, to keep their commitment, Dwight and Judy have said that they've uh, sacrificed vacations, and they've also said they had to cut back on how much they're saving for retirement. And they're not alone. TD Ameritrade, they're a financial investment company. They recently surveyed their clients and they asked how much money they spend on their kids' sports. And you know what they found? This is what TD Ameritrade found. 20% of their clients are spending $12,000 or more per child per year on sports. I mean, that just blows my mind. 20% of families are spending $12,000 or more per year per child on sports. And like the Davis family, many of these families have, have had to sacrifice vacations. They have had, had to cut back on, on their retirement savings. Uh, some have even admitted going into deep debt in order to fund their kids' sports. And why are they spending so much? Well, TD Ameritrade asked that question, and the number one answer that was given by far, by 67% of the parents, was that they are spending this much because they've made a commitment to help their kids earn a college athletic scholarship. Now, if you want to help your kid earn a college athletic scholarship, hey, feel free to go for it. But before you go all in, just beware, the commitment comes with a cost. And you know, helping your kid earn a college athletic scholarship, that's not the only commitment that comes with a cost. Jesus says making a commitment to follow him also comes with a cost. And Jesus says that we need to consider that cost or count that cost before we make our commitment to follow him. In Luke chapter 14, in verse 28, Jesus used the analogy of building a tower to make this point. In Luke 14, 28, Jesus said, Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And in the verse right after that, Jesus says that it would be foolish and embarrassing to start building a tower only to find out in the middle of the project that you don't have enough money to finish it. So Jesus says a wise builder will count the cost before he commits to building the tower. And the point that Jesus is making with the analogy is that we need to count the cost of following him. We need to count the cost of following him because Jesus doesn't want people to make a superficial commitment to follow him and then back out at some point when the going gets tough. So what is the cost of following Jesus? If Jesus wants us to count the cost before we follow him, what is the cost? Well, when you consider the context of what Jesus was saying when he talked about building the tower, you'll see that the context just might, or the, the cost just might be everything that we have. John Piper described the potential cost of following Jesus this way. He says, the cost could be total. All possessions given up, all relationships given up, even all of life given up. That's what Jesus calls for. Now, we don't know up front what Jesus is going to call us to do for him. But the cost of keeping our commitment to him just might be everything that we have. 
In the end, it may not be that much, but for some people it will be. And all of us need to be prepared for that cost when we commit to following Christ. Now, the apostles, guys like Peter and John, guys that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks as we go through the book of Acts, these guys, they heard Jesus talk about the cost of following him. And they probably didn't fully understand everything that he was saying to them when they heard it. But now they're finding out the cost of keeping their commitment to Christ is real. And they're finding out that the cost can be steep. You see, Peter and John, they've already paid a pretty high price to follow Jesus. They've given up their fishing business. They've faced opposition from the Jewish authorities. They've been arrested. They've been put in jail. And they've even been threatened by the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. So Peter and John and the other apostles, we're going to see them face even more opposition in the passage that we look at today. They've already faced a lot, and they're going to face even more. But what we're also going to see in our passage today is that they keep their commitment to Christ. They keep their commitment despite the cost. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that Peter and John and the other apostles, they keep their commitment to Christ because they have a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. And so we're going to see this conviction in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out at this time and you can open it up to Acts chapter 5. And you can follow along as I read verses 12 through 42. If you're new to City View Church, we, we value God's word here at City View Church. And so we open up the Bible and we look at what it says and we talk about what it says each and every week. And our pattern is to study through books of the Bible because, well, that's the way God gave the Bible to us, one book at a time. And so right now we're going through the book of Acts and we're going to be in chapter 5 today looking at verses 12 through 42. Now normally I have you stand as I read God's word, but this is a, a longer passage, so you may remain seated today as I read this. But follow along as I read. Okay, These are going to be the most important words that I speak today because these are God's words. Okay, here's what the scripture says in chapter 5 starting in verse 12. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use your word this morning to help us develop a concrete conviction that you exist, that you are real, that you're involved in our lives, and that your word is true. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in that passage that I just read from Acts chapter 5, we see that the apostles are at the temple, and they're teaching the people about Jesus. And then the Jewish authorities, they show up and arrest the apostles and put them in jail, and then put them on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the, San, the Sanhedrin, they tell the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because that's exactly what we saw happen to Peter and John in chapter 4 when we talked about living courageously for Christ a few weeks ago. And now the same scenario is playing out with all the apostles. Now in both passages, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, when the apostles are told by the Sanhedrin to stop teaching the people about Jesus, it's worth noting that in both passages, the apostles tell the Sanhedrin that they will not stay quiet. They will not stay quiet because they must obey God who has called them to witness for Christ. And in both passages, when the apostles are pressured by the Sanhedrin to stop teaching about Jesus, they keep their commitment to Christ knowing full well that it just might cost them their lives. And the reason they keep their commitment, the reason the apostles keep their commitment in both chapters is that they have this concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. So the main point that I want to make today as we look at this passage in chapter 5 is this. Because Jesus expects his followers to keep their commitment to him despite the cost, we must develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. Okay, Because Jesus expects his followers to keep their commitment to him despite the cost, we must develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. So how do we develop that concrete conviction? Well, we can develop it by taking note of the way God works in four places. So let me point the four places out to you. The first one is this. 
If you want to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true, take note of God's work in you. Take note of God's work in you. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now back in chapter 4, verse 30, the apostles prayed that God would do signs and wonders through them. And here we see that God answered their prayer. Okay, here we see that God was doing signs and wonders through the apostles. And what were these signs and wonders that God was doing through the apostles? Well, verses 15 and 16 tell us that the signs and wonders were miraculous healings that God was doing through the hands of the apostles. Now, if the apostles were to think back in time, if they were to think back, let's say, five years prior to this, and think about what they were doing at that time, you know what they would not have been doing five years prior to this? They would not have been healing multitudes of people. In fact, the apostles would not have been healing anybody five years prior to this. Five years prior to this, the apostles would have been sitting in a boat catching fish. But what are they doing now? They're healing multitudes of people. And why? How did they get this ability to, to heal people? Well, God was working in them and through them as they followed Jesus. The apostles didn't manufacture this ability. They didn't read some, some books on healing and then put into practice what they read. No, God was working in them and through them as they followed Jesus. And as the apostles looked at this change that had taken place in their life, it would have strengthened their conviction that God is real and that his word is true. See, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you become a follower of Christ, when you decide that you're going to commit your life to Christ, the Bible says that God changes you. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, that means if anyone is a follower of Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So what the Bible teaches is that when you make a commitment to follow Christ, God sends his Holy Spirit to come within, to live within you, and that makes you a new creation. And he gives you new desires and new attitudes. He gives you new priorities in life that will lead to new behaviors. And he also gives you new abilities to build up and strengthen the church. Now, some of these changes will happen to you in an instant, but a lot of them will develop over time. Last week, we talked about sanctification, and we talked about how sanctification is the process by which God is working in us to mold us and to shape us to make us more like Christ. And that sanctification process is an ongoing process that will last for our entire lives. So here's what this means. This means that if you compare who you are now to who you were before you began following Christ, you should see some changes. You should see some changes because you're a new creation. It also means that if you compare who you are now as a follower of Christ to who you were a few years ago as a follower of Christ, you should see some differences. You should, you should see some changes, and you should see some changes because God is working in you to sanctify you. So take note of these changes that God has brought about in your life. When you take note of these changes, it will develop a concrete conviction within you that God is real and that his word is true. And so I want to I share with you some ways that God has changed me. I want to share with you some ways that God has worked in me. So, so let's compare today's mic with the mic of 2003. 
Okay, let's compare the 2023 Mike with the 2003 Mike. So the 2003 Mike, he went to church every week, but he hated going to church. He found church boring and ir irrelevant. And when he went to church, he just sat there and daydreamed the whole time and thought about anything and everything about what was actually taking place in front of him. The 2003 Mike, he only went to church because he felt obligated to and because his girlfriend at the time and now wife Amy went to church. When the 2003 Mike went to church, he could not wait to get out of there and get on with his life. But praise God, the 2023 Mike is nothing like that. Gathering with you all is the highlight of my week. It's what I look forward to the most, gathering with you to worship our God together. And I'm here to worship God and serve him, not because I feel obligated to, but because I want to. Now, the 2003 Mike, he, he owned a Bible, but that Bible just sat on his shelf and collected dust. In 2003, Mike had absolutely no interest whatsoever in opening his Bible and reading it. But the 2023 Mike's not like that. 2023 Mike is hungry for God's word and eager to read and study God's word to learn more about who he is and how I can live for him. The 2003 Mike, he never, ever, ever in a million years would have thought that he'd be a pastor someday. And now here's the 2023 Mike who can't imagine doing anything else. The 2003 Mike, he thought people who talked about Jesus in the Bible, he thought they were crazy nuts who had been brainwashed in a cult. But the 2023 Mike wants nothing more than to talk to people about Jesus Christ and how they can have a relationship with God through faith in him. 2003 Mike's number one goal in life was to, to build up his own kingdom as much as possible, chase after power and possessions and prestige. But the 2023 Mike's number one goal in life is to build up God's kingdom and to be a steward and a servant and put the spotlight on Jesus. So what happened? Why is the 2023 Mike so much different than the 2003 Mike? I'll tell you what happened. In the summer of 2006, I heard the gospel and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. In the summer of 2006, I became aware of how I had sinned against God and how God had sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die on a cross and pay the price for my sin. And I heard that, if, I heard that God would forgive me of all of my sin if I, if I put my faith in him and committed to following him. And so I did that. And when I did that in the summer of 2006, God made me a new creation. And since then, God has been working in me, sanctifying me, over these past 17 years. Now, when I take note of these differences in my life, these changes that have taken place in my life over the last 17 years, there's absolutely no way any of this could have come about if it were not for God working in me during this time. And so I take note of these differences in my life. And when I take note of these differences in my life, it helps me develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. Now, if you want to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true, not only should you take note of the changes that God is working in you, but also take note of the way that God is working in others. Okay, take note of the way that God is working in others. The second part of verse 12, along with verse 13 in our text today, they're a little difficult to interpret. The second part of verse 12 says that they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, Solomon's portico was a part of the temple, so we know what that part of the verse refers to. 
The trouble with interpreting verse 12 is that we don't know for sure who they refers to when it says they were all together in Solomon's portico. They may be all the believers at the time. They may also just refer to the apostles. And we have a similar problem in verse 13. When verse 13 says none of the rest there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem, just like in verse 12, we don't know who them refers to. That might be all the believers or just the apostles. And the rest might be the Jews or it might be the Christians. When you look at the Greek grammar, you really can't tell one way or the other. Now, even though verse 12 and 13 are a little difficult to interpret, verse 14 is very clear. Okay, verse 14 says that multitudes of men and women were coming to faith in Christ. Verse 14 says that more people were coming to Christ than ever before. Multitudes of men and women coming to faith in Christ when they saw the signs that the apostles were doing and when they heard the message that the apostles were pro proclaiming. I mean, I just try to put myself there at the temple and just imagine how incredible it must have been to witness this, this spiritual awakening that was taking place there on Solomon's portico. God was bringing multitudes of people to faith in Christ and the church was growing by leaps and bounds despite all the opposition that Christians were facing. Multitudes of people heard the gospel and they, and they heard the gospel and then repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ. And why were multitudes of people doing this? Well, multiple, multitudes of people were turning from their sin and committing to following Christ because God was working in their lives. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, take note of that. That's a work of God. A Christian's testimony of how they came to faith in Christ and a testimony of how God has changed their life, that's evidence that God is real and that his word is true. So when the apostles were there at Solomon's portico and they saw that, the, that God was bringing multitudes of people to faith in Christ, that helped them to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. Now, one of my best friends back in Maryland is a guy my age who became an alcoholic when he was in high school. And when the weekend rolled around, the question wasn't, would he drink, but how much would he drink? And as time went on, my friend's drinking problem just got worse and worse. And one day when my friend was drunk, he tried to drive himself home from a party. And he ended up going too fast around the curve, and he spun his truck off the road and into the woods. Now, miraculously, neither he nor the truck were, were harmed. But the police showed up and they gave my friend a sobriety test, which of course he failed. And so they arrested him for DUI and they took him to jail. And when my friend got out of jail, he started reading a book about World War II. And there was something in that book that got his attention and got him wondering about his relationship with God. And so my friend went to church looking for some answers as to how he could have a relationship with God. And when he went to church, he heard the good news about God sending Jesus Christ to pay the price for his sin. And he heard the good news that if he trusted Jesus' sacrifice and if he committed to following Christ, that he would be forgiven. And so my friend did that. He put his faith in Christ and he committed to following him. And you know, for those first few years after he did that, he, he still struggled with alcohol. But God started sanctifying him. And over time, God helped him overcome that addiction. And for the last eight years or so, my friend's been 100% sober. And he's growing in his relationship with the Lord. In fact, he now leads a small group at his church and he even serves as a deacon. And if you ask my friend, what brought about these changes in your life? He'll tell you. 
He'll tell you that it was God working in him and through him. And so when I take note of the way that God has worked in my friend's life, it helps me develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. So I want to ask, how have you seen God at work in the lives of others? Have you seen God bring someone to repentance and faith in Christ? Have you seen God break someone's addiction? Have you seen God reconcile someone's broken relationship? Have you seen God miraculously provide for someone in need? Have you seen God heal someone and the doctors couldn't figure out how it happened? If you've seen that, take note of it. I told you the story of how God worked in the life of one of my friends. I could tell you a dozen more stories of, of how God has worked in the life of people that I know. And I love hearing their testimonies. I love hearing the way that God has worked in their lives because it helps me develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. And so if you want to develop that conviction, take note of God's work in the lives of others. Now, the third way to develop this concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true is to take note of God's work in crises. Take note of God's work in crises. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. In verse 17 and 18, Luke tells us that the high priest and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy because the Jewish people were flocking to the apostles and becoming followers of Jesus. And so this made the high priest and the Sadducees jealous. And in their jealousy, the high priest and the Sadducees, they arrest the apostles and put them in prison. I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like a crisis situation. But look at what God did in the crisis situation. Verse 19 says that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. God miraculously delivered the apostles from prison. And then in verse 20, the angel tells the apostles to go right back to the temple and continue teaching the people about this life. This life is a reference to Jesus. Jesus called himself the way and the truth and the life. And in verse 21, the apostles do exactly what the angel told them to do. They go right back to the temple. As soon as it was daybreak, they go right back to the temple, and they teach the people about Jesus. Now, the apostles, I mean, just, just put yourself in their shoes. Like, they had to know when they went back to the temple to teach the people about Jesus that this was going to anger the high priest and the Sadducees. They had to know that this was going to get them into some kind of trouble. But they did it anyways. And do you know why they did it? They did it because they had a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. And how did the apostles develop that concrete conviction? Well, they took note of how God worked in their own lives, they took note of how God worked in others, and now they just took note of how God worked in their crisis. The apostles took note of how God delivered them from prison. Now, back in the 1800s, there was a guy named George Mueller, and he opened five orphanages in England. And he did this without ever requesting money from anyone or without ever going into debt. George Mueller opened and operated these five orphanages simply by trusting God to provide for every need that he had. But one day there was a crisis. One day there were 300 orphan children sitting in the dining room for breakfast, but there was no food to feed them. The orphanage ran out of food. And the matron rushed over to George's office, and in a panic she asked George what she should do. George said in a calm voice, don't worry, I'll handle it. So George got up and he walked over to the dining room and when he came through the door, he said, children, let's pray. 
And they bowed their heads and George said, Dear God, we thank you for the food that you're going to give us to eat today. Amen. Now, George had no idea how God was going to provide food for these children. But he was fully confident that God would come through. Well, as soon as George finished praying this prayer, guess what happened? There was a knock at the door. And so they go over, answer the door, and it was the local baker. Now, the local baker had been up all night baking bread. He says, you know, God just put it on my heart to stay up all night and bake some bread and bring it to you this morning. Can you use some bread? Well, of course they could use some bread. Turns out there was enough bread for each and every one of the children. And so as the children are sitting there eating their bread, there's another knock at the door. And so they go over and they answer, and this time it was the milkman. And the milkman says, my cart just broke down right in front of your orphanage, and I've got to take all the milk off the cart so I can lift it up and work on the repairs. Can you, can you use some milk? Well, of course they could use some milk. Turns out there was enough for every child to have a full glass. So 30 minutes after George had calmly walked in and confidently prayed for God to provide, 300 children walked out of that dining room with breakfast in their bellies. Now, George Mueller, he could pray for God's provision with such confidence because he had a concrete conviction that God was real and that his word was true. And George developed this, this conviction by taking note of the way that God worked in crises. He took note of the way that God worked in crises like the one I just described to you, but also in many others. Like I said, George opened and operated these five orphanages without ever asking anyone for any money, without ever going into any debt. And so there were many, many times when the orphanages were dangerously close to running out of food and supplies. And every time it happened, George would pray and God would answer. And George took note of this. Every time God answered a prayer, George would take note of it. He kept a prayer journal. And in that prayer journal, George Mueller recorded over 50,000 answered prayers. 50,000. So how did George Mueller develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true? He took note of God's work in crises. So when you find yourself in a desperate situation and God delivers you, take note of that. Or when you find, your, when you find yourself facing some kind of crisis and, and God answers your prayer, take note of that. I mean, literally take note of it. Write it down. Write it down in a journal or type it up and save it on your computer. Because having a record of God's work in your crises, that will help you develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. If you don't write it down or if you don't type it up and save it, you might forget it. In the moment, you might say to yourself, well, I'll never forget this. But chances are, over time, you probably will. Now, you may remember some of the ways God worked in your life, but you probably won't remember them all. George Mueller may have remembered the day the baker and the milkman showed up. But if he hadn't written down how God answered the other 50,000 prayer requests, he probably would have forgotten most of them. So to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true, take note of God's work. Take note of God's work in crises. And then the fourth way to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true is to take note of God's work in history. Take note of God's work in history. In verses 21 through 28, what we see is that the high priest and the Sadducees arrest the apostles and put them in prison. And just like the first time this happened back in chapter 4, they planned to bring the apostles before the Sanhedrin the following morning. And so in the morning, the high priest sends some officers to the prison, and he tells them to bring out the apostles and bring them to the Sanhedrin. They're going to put them on trial again. 
But when the officers get to the prison, they can't find the apostles. They can't find the apostles because, well, remember, God had just delivered the apostles and the apostles were back at the temple preaching and teaching about Jesus. And so the officers, they return to the authorities and, and they say, well, you know, the prison's locked and the guards are on duty, but the apostles aren't there. We have no idea where they're at. And everyone just stood there perplexed, is what Luke says. They stood there stumped, trying to figure out what happened to the apostles, trying to figure out where they went. And so as they're sitting there scratching their heads, somebody runs up and, and they say, I found them. I found those guys. They're, they're, they're back at the temple teaching the people about Jesus. And so the captain of the guard and his officers, they, they go to the temple and they bring the apostles to the Sanhedrin. Now the chairman of the Sanhedrin was the high priest. Remember the Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members and the chair of this group was the high priest. And so when the apostles are set before the Sanhedrin, the high priest addresses them in verse 28. High priest basically says, what are you guys doing? We told you not to teach in the name of Jesus. And not only are you out there doing that, to make matters worse, you're telling the people that we're responsible for Jesus's death. Do you guys know how much trouble you're going to be in now? Interestingly, the high priest never asked the apostles how they got out of prison. Now, in verse 29, Peter acts as the apostles' spokesman. He often played that role. And so in verse 29, Peter acts as their spokesman, and he says to the high priest, he says, Mr. High Priest, we must obey God rather than men. Peter says, Mr. High Priest, we don't care what the price is that we have to pay. We're going to keep our commitment to Christ. We're going to keep our commitment to God. He told us to come out here to the temple and, and teach the people about Jesus in this place, so that's what we're going to do. Now, what enabled Peter to, to respond with such boldness? I'll tell you what enabled Peter to respond with such boldness. Peter had a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. And how did Peter develop that conviction? Well, he explains to the Sanhedrin how he developed it. In verses 30 and 31, Peter tells the high priest that God raised Jesus from the dead and then exalted Jesus to his right hand. And in verse 32, Peter says, we are witnesses of these things. In other words, Peter says, Mr. High Priest, we're going to obey God rather than you because we know that God is real and that his word is true. And we know this. We know that God is real and his word is true because we've taken note of how God has worked in history. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus after God raised him from the dead. And we were there and we saw it when God exalted Jesus and had him ascend into heaven to be seated at his right hand. And Peter goes on to say in verse 32 that he and the other apostles, they also saw God at work in history on the day of Pentecost when God sent the Holy Spirit to come and live within them. These events that Peter's talking about, these are some of the most important events in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is absolutely positively the most important event in the history of this world. It's proof that God is real and that his word is true. Now, how do we know the resurrection really happened? How do we know that the resurrection is a historical reality and not just some kind of legend that the apostles made up? Well, I've got some really good evidence that the resurrection really happened. First of all, some of the apostles who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, they wrote about it. Guys like Peter and Matthew and John, 
They wrote down the accounts of how God raised Jesus from the dead. And their stories match. Now, not only did the apostles write about the resurrection, they were also willing to suffer and die as they defended those claims. If the apostles had made up the story about the resurrection, as some people claim, at least one of them would have cracked under the pressure and said, you know what, we made this up, it's all a lie. You see, people might die for a lie if they believe it's true, but very rarely would somebody die for a lie that they know is a lie. You know, in a group of 12, maybe one or two would die for a lie that they knew was a lie, but not all 12. But that's exactly what happened in history. Eleven of the apostles suffered and died defending their claims that Jesus rose from the dead. And the twelfth one, John, he was exiled to the island of Patmos to finish out his life there. And then there's the question about the body. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then what happened to his body? Several theories have been put forth. But when those theories are subjected to academic scrutiny, none of them can hold water like the resurrection. So if you want to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true, take note of how God worked in history. Study, study the evidence for the resurrection for yourself. Now, in addition to the resurrection, there's another way that God has worked in history that will help us develop this concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. The apostles wouldn't have been able to do this, but we can. You see, what we can do is we can look back at the last 2,000 years of history and we can see how God has preserved the church. When Peter told the Sanhedrin that the apostles were going to obey God rather than men, Luke tells us in verse 33 that the Sanhedrin was enraged and wanted to kill them. But that's when a wise old respected member in the Sanhedrin, a guy named Gamaliel, that's when he stood up and he told the rest of the council that they probably shouldn't go forward and kill these guys. In verses 34 through 39, Gamaliel tells the council that if God is not behind the apostles' movement, that movement will eventually die out on its own. And he talks about two other recent move, movements that had kind of risen up and then died out on their own. Gamaliel, he warns the council that they need to be very careful what they do when it comes to the apostles. And they need to be careful because if God is behind this movement, and if they kill the apostles then they're going to be guilty of opposing God. And Gamaliel and the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin, they would know from their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures that it never ends up well for those who oppose God. And by the way, Gamaliel says, if God is behind this movement, it doesn't matter what you do to these guys. The church will prevail no matter what. Well, friends, it's been 2,000 years. And we can look back over these 2,000 years and we can see that God has preserved the church. The movement has not died out. Emperors have tried to crush the church. Rulers have tried to ban the Bible. Armies have tried to annihilate Christians. Politicians have tried to silence preachers. You name it, somebody's tried it to destroy the church. But the church is still here. And the church is here because God has worked in history to preserve it. So if you want to develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true, just take note of his work in history. Take note of God's work in history when he raised Jesus from the dead and take note of God's work in history as he's preserved the church. So what did the Sanhedrin do? Well, they took Gamaliel's advice. They chose not to kill the apostles on this occasion. 
Instead, in verse 40, it tells us that they beat the apostles and charged them once again not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And what did the apostles do? Well, in verse 41, it says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And then in verse 42, we're told that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Despite the cost, the apostles got right back out there teaching and preaching about Jesus. Despite the cost, the apostles kept their commitment to Christ. And they kept their commitment to Christ because they had a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. Friends, following Jesus comes with a cost. Jesus made that clear when he talked about building a tower. Jesus also made it clear that he expects his followers to keep their commitment to him despite that cost. That's why we must develop a concrete conviction that God is real and that his word is true. And if you want to develop that conviction, take note of God's work in you. Take note of God's work in others. Take note of God's work in crises and take note of God's work in history. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for being a God who changes us. We thank you, God, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we commit to following him, that you send your Holy Spirit to come and live within us, to make us a new creation with, with new desires and new attitudes, new behaviors, new priorities. And God, as we see these changes taking place in our own lives, it gives us confidence that you are there and that you love us and that your word is true and that you keep your promises. Not only when we see these changes in our own lives, but in the lives of others around us. God, you are active and involved in, in the lives of your, of your creation. And so as we take note of that, God, it helps us to know that we can trust you. It helps us to know that we can live for you. God, we thank you for the ways that you've worked in the course of history. First and foremost, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Because that's the proof of who he is, that he's the son of God. It's the proof that everything that Jesus has said about who he is and why he came is true. It's the proof, God, that you are real and that our hope is secure in you. And God, we thank you for the ways that you've preserved the church over these 2,000 years. We thank you, Lord, that despite the opposition that the church has faced, that believers are gathering today all around the world to give you glory and to worship you. Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege that we have to be a part of that. We thank you that you've called us out of the darkness and into the light. And Lord, because you've done that, we want to worship you. And we are here to worship you today. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.